political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, and thank you for making YDHTY the number one podcast for the independent voter, where some podcasts cater to the left Twix crowd, others cater to the right Twix crowd. We cater to that middle Twix for many reasons, including of which you get more Twixes that way. If you are a first-time listener, welcome, and if you know someone who would dig this show, please forward it with them. This podcast and this movement grows by word of mouth. Now, this is the second in our four-part series on the debate over critical race theory, and in our last episode, we learned what critical race theory was, that it is not being taught in our public schools, and we discussed the reasons issues of race and racial justice stir up such controversy in America, as well as other countries with different histories. And this week, we're going to continue the conversation with a critique not of critical race theory per se, but of the tendency we have in America to force one version of historical fact on our children. I'm the Khalid. Associate Professor of History at Carleton College is a vocal critic of the tendency in America to shut down particular types of thought and speech, whether it be from the right in the form of bans on teaching critical race theory or the left in shutting down any critique of it. And in our conversation, we discuss her childhood in a country that placed restrictions on freedom of expression, how her perception of the state of free speech in America differed from the reality she experienced after arriving here, and how the solution may not be to decide what children should learn, but how. I will be back at the end with final thoughts. So first off, before we start into the episode, I always give a situational warning as to what's going on in my house right now. Um... My children are all home. It is an oppressively hot summer day. Uh, so the air conditioning is blowing uh, right like next to my head. So if any if if you the listener hear that, just keep that in mind. That's our disclaimer. Amna, are there any environmental disclaimers you'd like to offer? None, none that I can think of. Um, but I do live in a house which uh, you know people come in and out of as um, they wish. So. Hopefully there won't be any disturbances, but I can't guarantee it. Okay, good enough. Good enough. I guess second disclaimer for the folks watching this on YouTube too is it is laundry day here. So I've come dressed like I just stepped off a golf cart in Florida. So enjoy the show, folks. So I was telling you before we hit record, this was an episode I was really looking forward to because as I started to research critical race theory, I found that there were a number of voices on, let's call it the con side of teaching critical race theory, for lack of a better way to phrase it, who were kind of kooky, to be frank. No offense to people who believed it, but they were kind of kooky. There were some there were some theories I'll get into in a bit that just didn't seem uh, relevant to me. Your critique was by far the most thoughtful one I read in terms of your approach to ways we really ought to rethink the debate over race 
in this country. And so this is why I was absolutely thrilled when you got back to me and when you agreed to come on. Before we we get into the bulk of the conversation, though, I'll tell you what I've discovered so far. First off is that critical race theory is not part of a worldwide Marxist plot to eliminate property rights, uh, which was refreshing. I was very glad to know that that wasn't the case, which was good. Number two is that what a lot of people think critical race theory is, or what a lot of people are arguing about, is actually not critical race theory. And so I guess to level set and 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 help the listener understand what it is we're going to be talking about today, could you maybe describe what you think critical race theory is in the popular context? So what are we fighting about? The first thing is, okay... Um... What we're fighting about is not about critical race theory as it was originally conceived of. And so what is critical race theory? It's a theory that comes out really in the mid to late 70s in legal circles amongst legal scholars who are talking about post-civil rights and they're doing a critique of the justice system and the legal system. And they're saying, well, race is not irrelevant. We cannot think about the American legal system as something that is above race uh, or where race doesn't factor in. So when we think about American institutions, they're saying you still need to look at how race is operating. So in a way, what they're doing is they're critiquing the idea of individual merit as being the sole basis of a person's success, right? And that is the myth that we have propagated in the US that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you can, you know, the self-made person can. So, so it's a critique of that and saying race remains relevant. Now, first off, there, there are a number of scholars who came up with ideas, and some of these ideas are very interesting and thought-provoking. Not all of them agree, even within critical race theory itself. There is disagreement. There's not one position. Like with any theoretical or intellectual movement, there is a diversity of viewpoints that we need to think about. The second thing I'd say is that like with any concept that emerges in a particular context, once you take it out of that context and use it elsewhere, it can be very useful and it can be enlightening. It can make you see things you hadn't seen before, but it also gets diluted or it becomes, it expands in some unhelpful ways. So take the concept of contagion. We use it so often in our common parlance. It's an idea that comes from the medical sphere, but the technical way in which what we understand by contagion is very different from how we apply it more broadly to social phenomena. So critical race theory itself has been um, used because it talks about structural racism or institutions having hidden uh, inequities within them. And it's been used to talk about inequities across different institutions within America. What we're arguing about today is not critical race theory. It's ideas that have been informed by that kind of framework about equity, about a worldview, really, about disparity and power differentials. And that's really what we're arguing about in the public sphere right now. Of course, it's coming to a head in the conversation about whether we can, you know, it almost doesn't matter what you call it, uh, but how do we teach this particular worldview? So whether you call it CRT or you call it something else, I like to call it like CRT informed or CRT light, because it's not really CRT, but it's ideas that are kind of inspired by that theoretical movement. And how do we teach that worldview? Um, do we teach it as the worldview, the only way to see the world? Or do we teach it as 
one way of seeing the one lens through which we're seeing the world. Yeah. So, so maybe to, to, to add a little color to that, then what do you feel that worldview says? Okay. So as it stands, that worldview says that, you know, it kind of does this thing that I think is pretty elementary that we teach our students not to do, which is the first thing, if you take a statistics class is we teach them that correlation does not equal causation. So that worldview um, it may, it may in statistics, a correlation might be because of causation, but it doesn't, it, you cannot um, necessarily deduce that. Now, what critical race theory light does is it says that racial inequities, so there is a correlation between racial inequities and outcomes, right? And those that are being, um, that are not rising to the top. And it assumes then, the assumption is, that the reason that these people are not rising to the top or are not succeeding is that there is an institutional built-in bias. So structural racism is present, and that is the sole cause of these people not being treated as equals and not having equal opportunity. So it takes the lack of equal outcomes as necessarily saying that there is a lack of equal opportunities, as implying that. Okay, understood. And I, I want to build on that, but the the first thing I want to highlight too, and again, another thing I found really interesting about your bio is that I think most people entering into the racial debate are, or the, the conversations around race are coming with their own historical baggage. So as an American, you automatically have a certain concept about race in the United States. You have a certain concept about your role and your position in that, your philosophies and so on. You came here from Pakistan. So you didn't come with that baggage. You really came with a clear set of eyes. And I wonder when you arrived here and first entered into these discussions, what did you see? Yes, I am not um, born American. And I think maybe Tracing my trajectory might help um, explain some of the motivations for that, you know, that drove me over here. I was raised in Pakistan. I am a Pakistani. Um, I did my undergraduate degree there. And I really came of age in um, what I define as the Salman Rushdie era when Satanic Verses came out and there was the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. And as someone who, you know, I grew up in a relatively liberal family in Pakistan. So my immediate context was a liberal one. And and Pakistan is, is a complicated country, which is full of contradictions, much like any other country, I guess. But the picture that we get in the US is a very flat picture. So I just want to complicate that a little bit and say that it's it's not like as oppressive in all domains as it may seem, yet the the kind of dogma and um, the prescription of how you should live life operates in insidious ways. It's there, it's present. So growing up in that context, and as someone who was very curious uh, from an early age and was always encouraged to ask questions, I found myself often being shut down in school. From, from an early age when I'd ask questions, particularly those around religion, you know, that there is a, you, you can't just go anywhere your ideas lead you in a country where the 
national ideology is Islamic and certain questions can lead you into murky waters. So those are not areas that teachers want to go into precisely because there are consequences if they do. We have blasphemy laws. We have, um, you know, there's serious consequences if you go down those routes. So that's the context I'm coming from. And when Salman Rushdie happened, the, the response of the West, I call it the West broadly, was really inspirational for someone like me who was like, yeah, offense. You know, these certain Muslims were offended and they were asking for his head. And it really doesn't qualify as a reason to to shut down speech or expression. So it was in that moment that I looked to the West and particularly to the Western Academy as a place where I thought, okay, this is a place where you have a free flow of ideas, where there are no limitations on where you can go. You are genuine, you can engage in genuine inquiry. And as a result of that, after my undergraduate, I went to England and I did my postgraduate work there, after which I went to South Africa and I spent two years in South Africa. And so I come from that experience. I don't know whether I'd say I come from I don't know, you you said I I come with clear eyes. I don't know if they're clear necessarily, but they're definitely informed by different contexts. So Sure. So I come from that context. And when I came to the US, I was thrilled because I thought, you know, this is even better than being in England, where I'd spent a lot of time, not because I had a bad time in England, but just because of the sheer fact that the freedom of expression is a constitutional right here. And it feels like, you know, these guys have figured it out. Um, They know what it means. And and then you met us. <laughs> I came to a small liberal arts college, and in many ways, it was a dream come true. You know, it was I, I get to teach what I want to teach. I can engage in cross disciplinary exploration, and I'm in a great community. But the scales fell from my eyes, if if I may. You know, a few years into being here, when I started hearing about things like trigger warnings and bias response teams and all this language of offense as being a rationale for stopping debate or kind of um, shutting people down. And and that was disturbing to me. And and so to me, in that moment, it was a very familiar feeling that I was feeling. I was like, oh, I know this feeling. I know it from when there is a right and a wrong way to answer a question. And I was beginning to relate to what I had experienced growing up in Pakistan. And that was a moment of disappointment. Now, let me be very clear. I am not saying that America is at the brink of having blasphemy laws. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think we're there. I don't think we're close to there. But I do think that we are in an area where there is um, a new kind of dogma emerging about how people can talk about certain things, particularly around race. One thing I just I want to step back to before we get to the the original question, because, you know, as you were talking, a lot of ideas are popping into my head is, can you can you give a little more detail on what it's like living in an environment where there is such a thing as legally sanctioned speech or, or illegal speech? How are those laws applied? What is it like jaywalking where everybody does it? And you know, you just don't want to do it in front of the wrong person? Or is it more severe than that? It's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, the skills of or their levels, if you will, of how you can subvert the system. So first thing is you need to recognize that the way the law is applied, right? We have blasphemy laws. You can be stoned to death or you can be there's a death sentence if you blaspheme. Just recently, the mm-hmm. most recent and disturbing case is of an eight-year-old who um, is currently who has been accused of blasphemy, and often in Pakistan, it has been used as a way of targeting the minorities. 
So, you know, and by minorities, I'm specifically referring to religious minorities like Christians and Ahmadis, which is, you know, who claim to be Muslims, but Pakistan doesn't consider them Muslims. It's a complicated legal issue, but it's a it's become a way of targeting minorities. Now, someone like me who comes from a particular class and is at least raised as Muslim, you know, is unlikely to be targeted, but it does happen. It can happen that this comes to bite you. And and there are certain small circles in which you can question these things, but they have to be very, very quietly questioned, only within those mm-hmm. circles. You can explore these ideas. And you know, you grow up knowing that there's certain questions that are going to get you into trouble. So you grow up with this kind of what I think is actually a useful skill to have to to appreciate which context you're in and you learn to appreciate that different rules apply and you navigate the system. In some ways, I think it teaches you how to be subversive in ways, it makes you more creative in your subversion and you find less explicit ways of challenging the system. But the fact of the matter remains that you live with knowing that if you challenge the system or if someone calls you out on challenging the system, there are real repercussions. It's it's funny you say that. This so in an earlier episode that I did as part of a series on tech censorship, one of the things I we talked about was how in America the freedom of speech as you say is sacrosanct. You can't touch it, you can't pass laws. But what we often do is we use private institutions as a way to restrict speech and restrict thought in in absence of the government. And so there are certain views you can express that are not illegal, but are career suicide, you know, are, are economic suicide. And so I'd like to get into that. So you you come here and you know, you, you mentioned you started to see certain subjects cordoned off. So can you can you dive a little bit deeper into what you saw happening in the discussion specifically around race? Sure. Before I do that, I mean, the, the thing about the First Amendment is that it's it's very much about state sanction, right? So the state yeah. cannot limit speech. And yes, that leaves open the domain for private institutions to to come up with their yeah. own rules. So what I found disturbing and uh, was that I, I come from a state where we have had a series of dictatorships. State censorship is very familiar to me. What I found strange yeah. was that in the name of progressive values now, uh, which are usually aligned against censorship, we are asking to shut down conversations. So for instance, let me give you an example. There was discussion about bias mm-hmm. response teams where the idea, and this is what really got me, was that someone, a student, for instance, can say that they were offended by something someone else said, which they perceived as a microaggression, let's say. And Mm -hmm. the part that really got me was that the idea was that instead of going to the person who's supposedly offended them and saying, hey, that was offensive, why did you say that? And then starting a conversation Mm -hmm. to talk about those things, that you go to the administration and report them. And then there's an Mm -hmm. investigation. And if the investigation, and in the investigation, what's fascinating is that the intent of the person who said it does not count. Only the impact that it has had on the individual counts. Now, that just seems wrong-headed to me. Like, how not looking at the intention of people, particularly when it comes around comments about race, yeah. really makes it impossible. It's not a winnable situation. And more than winnable, winnable isn't the right thing, but it's not a situation that produces dialogue and deeper understanding of where people are coming from. And as an educator, when I find that we are using ways to prevent conversation, that's disturbing to me. 
And this is one of the things I see happening in the in the conversation around race now. After the murder of George Floyd, there was a clear push on at least in corporate America and and certainly prior to that in academic America to change the conversation around racial justice and and change the conversation around racial inequity. And I think one of the challenges we had prior to that is that very often conversations around race were often, you know, a, a handful of black people discussing their experience and then getting shouted down by the majority of white people. And I've seen those discussions take place. And so it's very difficult uh, for, I think, the black experience to be heard or was difficult, I would say, prior is a little easier now. And that's almost flipped on its head. And, and I think the issue I see isn't so much that the perspectives of a, a, a lot of the, the black population are being heard in the way they are. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but I would agree with you. I think the issue is, is that if you're a person who's not on board with that, I don't believe the way we handle the dialogue today encourages them to make that journey or encourages them to make that philosophical leap. I think it encourages them to really kind of nod their head and pretend they agree, but really harbor all the same philosophies that they came into the room with. I couldn't agree more. I think you're right. And I think the problem over here is that we're treating the black experience and the white experience as monoliths. And we've, we've pre-decided what that experience is and what a black person's position on a particular issue ought to be and what a white person's position ought to be. And once we begin to start thinking about people in categories like these, and we have predefined ideas about what each category ought to believe in, we're down a very slippery slope. Because we have fundamentally, and it's, it's a deeply unhelpful way to have a conversation, because then you, you shut down anyone from any side who doesn't seem to be speaking the language that they're meant to be speaking or espousing a position that they're meant to be espousing. And that is, that is completely wrongheaded. So the assumption over here that I would challenge is that we need to start breaking down these categories of what the Black experience as a whole is. The Black experience is huge and there is a huge multiplicity within it. And, and a true reckoning would be when we, when we engage with all of it instead of trying to lump it into one narrative. Do you feel there are consistent patterns in the way the Black community on the whole experiences America that should be taught, should be discussed, or maybe haven't been talked, uh, haven't been discussed as freely as maybe in years prior? I mean, the thing is that when you think about America's racial history, of course, there are certain trends, right, that cannot be overlooked, that need to be engaged with, but they can't be seen and isolated and picked, you know, and seen as the only factor in determining power structures or power relations uh, or how institute. There are many, many other factors that are, that, are, that are at play here. So, for instance, one of the things that's completely getting thrown out is class over here. And the fact of the matter is that your socioeconomic class has a massive role to play in your trajectory. And you can be a poor white person and you will continue facing many of the same kinds of institutional barriers, if you will, that we now see associated with black Americans. But if you're a black 
upper class or upper middle class individual, you will not face some of those barriers. So I I feel like we're having the wrong conversation, like the terms are warped. It's a distorted picture. Yet, having said that, I don't want to say that race is not important and that we shouldn't be talking about it. The, The beauty of a good analysis of anything is that you look at the context and engage with the context very deeply. So talking about race broadly can only get us so far. What irritates me about the conversation right now is that it's been, you know, it's these broad stroke conversations, which are not really delving into the specifics and particularities of situations. So one of the questions that I suspect you will ask me is, how should we be talking about this in schools? You... You're I'm a mind, mind. reader. <laughs> so, you're, you're beautiful. Um, <laughs> the one, so what I would say is one of the problems, we are in the place we are in primarily because we have stopped putting a weight on history and teaching history in a robust fashion. It's because mm-hmm. of an ignorance of history and mm-hmm. a kind of very pat, flat understanding of American history or history more broadly that we are at the moment that we're at, where everything is seen from this presentist lens, right? So one beginning point is let's refocus on history and teach history. Now the question is, teaching of history is not so simple. There's not one way to do it. The best thing we can do at this moment, I feel, is to get students to engage with history and to show them there is no one history, that historians debate things amongst themselves. There are different perspectives Mm -hmm. and introduce them to the different methods that are used to construct different perspectives. So if you used a critical race theory perspective, sure, I think it has something to contribute. You read something that uses that perspective, introduce them to that, but simultaneously introduce them to another interpretation of it. And that way, Mm -hmm. what we do is we're exposing students to different ways of reading history and that makes them appreciate what context is and what the importance of context is once you begin to get into teaching them the importance of context then people become less willing to make these kind of sweeping generalizations which get us nowhere another question i have for you in that line is you know how do we do that in the in the k to 12 setting because in a lot of cases that's what folks are talking about. They're they're talking about the way it's taught in the K to 12 setting. And the version of history we learn in America from K to 12 is vastly different than what you get in an academic setting. And given some folks don't go to college, you know, their their last experience in, in, in a classroom is in high school, you know, a lot of folks don't get that deeper understanding. So is there a way to translate that into the K to 12 setting? So Teaching history at the school level is a deeply political thing. It always has been. It's part of the nationalist project, right? You 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 teach patriotism at an early age. So to pretend somehow, the first thing, that somehow K through 12 history teaching has been neutral or objective, I think is, is inaccurate. It's already a distortion. It's always been political. Been, and, and that's why in different countries, you have these history wars, history textbook wars all the time about what is the kind of history we need to teach. I think we underestimate the ability of students in the K through 12 setting to handle complexity and to handle diversity of thought. So the first thing I think we should be pushing to teach history in a different way, not where we ban a particular version of history, but we should the emphasis should be let's teach students historiography, as we call it amongst historians, which is how has a subject been 
written over a period of time. So different competing perspectives is something that I think students handle very well. One of the reasons students hate history in school, I have many freshmen come to my classes and we start talking history and they're like, I had no idea that history can be this interesting. I thought it was just a bunch of dates and, you know, we teach dogma. And I think we can still be, you know, teaching students to be patriotic, but simultaneously be introducing them to different ways of looking at something. So I do think that we need to reform the history curriculum. There's no question about that. But I think it's not about which version are we going to teach as sacrosanct. It's about let's teach more than one version and say, you know, people look at things differently. There are different lenses that people use. And surprisingly, the research shows children can handle complexity, right? So instead of going in that direction and seeing our young people as as individuals who can who can deal with diversity what we've done is infantilized our adults so that even in college now we're trying to mollycoddle them and that is not what i see as the mission of education which is empowering people to make sense of the world for themselves 40% folks That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. If I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, too, it seems like early education in the United States, parents are more concerned with teaching children what to think rather than teaching them how to think. Correct. And I, you know, I say this from, I I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old and by virtue of them, you know, I'm engaged in school conversations and deal with other children. And and what I find is that you can, you can have very complicated conversations. People respond to expectations. So when you expect people to, you know, make that leap and engage with something in a more, slightly more complex way, they, they rise to the occasion, right? So I find that when I'm working with my children, when I raise my expectation of how I want them to think about something, that I want them to approach it from different perspectives, 
they they rise to it. They may not initially, they may resist it, but they rise to it. And that is the process of education. We raise our expectations and our students will rise to it. So I, I contest the model of the child that we are using when we're thinking about teaching them history at the K through 12 level. Yeah. And so take another or to look at this issue another way too, there have been a number of bills passed banning critical race theory being taught in public schools, which to be clear, I learned is not happening. It's there's somewhere under 5% of public schools are currently teaching, you know, what is officially known as critical race theory. I assume you feel those, that's a wrongheaded idea too. I cannot get behind banning of anything, right? I, I think yeah. teaching critical race theory as dogma is the only version is, is wrong. And I think parents who are concerned about that should certainly speak up and say, hey, listen, we need to teach a multiplicity of ways of seeing the world, mm-hmm. not this one way. I can get behind that. But state banning has never in the history of humankind resulted well. And the US could learn a lot more if they stopped navel gazing and just looked to the rest of the world. This is where the American exceptionalism has gone awry, where they don't even mm-hmm. consider what they can learn from other places. There's a lot to learn. So look at countries that have done this, see what happens. And the precedent is not a favorable one. And what the US has on the whole done right, there are many things the US has done wrong, but one of the things they've done right is limit the degree of state censorship particularly in education. And we have a good thing. Let's not spoil that. The way to deal with this problem is not by censorship, because today you censor this and someone else will be in power tomorrow. And you, you're, it's a knee-jerk reaction that they will censor something that you think is important. And then we're all down the drain. It sounds to me too, to kind of jump back to something you said earlier, your recommendation isn't eliminate a particular type of philosophy, but teach it amongst a basket of different approaches or a basket of different philosophies of history effectively. Absolutely. And I think then, you know, you you put up, you actually set up, you set your students up well to think about, well, which version has what merit? Chances are you get some good ideas from, likely from different versions. And then you you, you give them the tools to evaluate. It, it doesn't mean that they have to buy a particular version. It means that they then have the tools to decide which version appeals to them or which aspects of different versions are good and which are not. Do you know, it's funny, you, you mentioned looking outside America and looking at other parts of the world. And literally 30 minutes before our conversation, I was listening to a story on the US withdrawal from Afghanistan which is a, a region that I don't think a lot of Americans understand. And I don't think Americans understand the level of tribalism in that country and Pakistan as well. And again, I'm going to offer my overly simplistic history of the country, but has its own, has its own history of tribalism. And a clear one is, you know, what's going on in, in Kashmir between India and, and Pakistan. Is there something we can learn from that to do the opposite in a way here? Or are we just arrogant? You know, as a country, is America too Pollyannish about people's ability to get along and about people's ability to break down tribal structures? Well, I think Americans at this particular moment are in um, 
are very well placed to understand the tribalism that is very much part of human nature because we're in that moment ourselves. We do not, you know, these are countries that have been portrayed in American public discourse as somehow being backward and not being able to get with it, right? Because of the tribalism that is inherent there. And now we see it playing out in the U.S. itself. So actually, I think it's a humbling moment for the U.S. And we have, in the U.S., people have, I think, been arrogant about it. I think it's a humbling moment. It's a moment to realize we have a lot more in common with other countries and just humans in general, and that we can actually learn something from them. And there are two things that this moment are really calling out for. One is a deep engagement with history, and two is a broader context, global context, of how we understand our place in the world and how we understand Americans in relation to other people. It's not that different. And the lessons to be learned are, they're out there. They're writ large. Pakistan and India have been fighting over Kashmir since their very inception. These are two, you know, third world countries. India wouldn't like being classified like that, but for all intents and purposes, it is a third world country when you look at how people are living, the vast majority of people. And can we continually- I'll feel the hate mail for you. <laughs> and we continually, uh, both countries are to blame, you know, that we, we fuel these nuclear operations in order to fight these national wars when our populations are starving. There is no world in which that is a reasonable thing to do. But the tribalism- makes it the only thing to do for these institutions or these countries. And I think we are in a similar moment in the U.S. where so much of the conversation is just becoming pathetic, really, because we're wedded to our positions and not really discussing the key issue at heart. And we're all going to lose. So I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, in preparation for this conversation. And the last couple of days, I've been rolling around why the idea of race is such a contentious issue here. And as you're talking, I I feel like one of the big issues is it runs or certain perspectives of race and of racial inequity in this country run contrary to this image a lot of Americans have of us being this multi-ethnic meritocracy where where everybody gets along and ultimately everybody is judged by the quality of their work. And I think a lot of these ideas run contrary to that. The second thing I would say, too, is that I don't think there's tribalism without anxiety. And you tell me if I'm wrong here. I don't think there's tribalism without being afraid you're going to lose something. And I don't think you can be afraid you're going to lose something or you can be anxious unless there's something in your environment making you that way. And I'm not even going to postulate what it is in America that people are anxious about, but... I would say as a country, and again, this is pre-pandemic, you know, as a country, there's a high level of anxiety. There's a high level of, of fear in general. And I wonder if that just makes this discussion even scarier to people. I mean, you're quite right, right? What informs this kind of tribalism or what heightened tribalism is anxiety or fear. And I think that there are two pieces over here. There is a tension to belong to a community. We, As human creatures, we are pushed towards making communities. And that's part of our human tendency. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. But tribalism is the extreme of that. And I think it's about the stakes of what do you lose if you question something. In a community where you appreciate diversity of thought, then the stakes are not high in terms of what you will lose if you dissent. But in a community where the 
preconditions to belonging to that community are that you must subscribe to certain points of view, then you you know the the idea of losing your people or being excommunicated from the people that you have your daily bonds with that are your social network and social networks are very important because they sustain you on a day-to-day level they're critical for your physical well-being they're critical for your mental well-being so when that is under threat then yes people will not speak up and the stakes of thinking and questioning which might lead you to disagree are so much higher that you are willing to submit to the dogma and you initially you might even know that you are espousing stuff you don't believe in over a period of time you start believing it too because you start shutting off your critical faculties because belonging to that community is so vital and this is why the fundamental values underpinning a community I think are critical if you value dissent if you value disagreement and diversity of viewpoint within a community then it leads to a much more open society where people are less likely to self-censor and less likely to want to censor others. But it's when you lose that critical value, which is intention with what defines a community. We need to recognize these things are intention. And the whole human experience is about navigating these tensions and you know creating that equilibrium, if you will. And there's no easy way. No. Oh, no. I mean, I'll, I'll confess to you and to... And, and to the listener that I, my racial philosophy or my, my outlook on, on racism in this country has evolved because I'm not afraid to say dumb things to the wrong people. And I've said, I've gotten into a lot of really dumb arguments and I've looked very poorly in them. And it was ultimately being honest with how I felt. And it was ultimately listening to the folks on the other side of that conversation that eventually got me to where I am. If I had done that in the wrong place at the wrong time, that could have had very grave economic consequences. And again, if I want to tie up this conversation with a pretty little bow and give folks something to to walk away with, in my mind is a as a culture, maybe we have to be more accepting and more forgiving and more open to dissent and more open to these conversations that that run contrary to our view. And I, I know there are, are probably some people listening who would say, yes, but some of that conversation and some of those opinions are hurtful to certain groups of people. And so I would say, if you are of a certain group of people that are being discussed and that conversation bothers you, go nuts. You can do whatever you want. If you're not, get off the cancel wagon and try and help be a bridge to that person. Because it's because because look, nobody came out of the womb woke. And so I, I, I do feel like as a culture, we just have to be a little, little less sanctimonious, a little more humble, and have to take the approach that our role is not to eliminate the dissenter, but rather ultimately to get the dissenter over to our side. Well, not, or not, or go to the dissenter side, right? Being open. And I think this is, this is the key. I think, you know, the, the issue over here is that you're saying something that hurts someone. And if you're the person that's being hurt, I think there's a moment to sit down and think about why is it hurting you? And nothing can hurt you unless you let it hurt you at least in the world of 
conversation <laughs> right so so what is it what is the what is the pressure point over there it's actually an interesting way to get into a bigger conversation about values and and that conversation can go any which way but to use hurt as the way to shut down conversation without investigating what it is that is hurtful why it is hurtful is is not going to lead us anywhere because then it's my hurt against your hurt and it would also be a productive question to ask as well look everybody in america would say they're not racist except for like the neo-nazis and the klansmen right so everybody would say they're not racist um maybe they won't either <laughs> possibly i mean and so and so but i do think that it's worth i i do think everyone ultimately wants to do good for the most part everybody thinks they're a good person everybody nobody wants to hurt another person generally so i feel like that's a productive a productive approach is maybe you hurt somebody maybe you ought to ask why maybe you ought to ask why it hurts maybe that's a more productive stance than again just backing into your corner yeah and maybe it's also more productive to ask why you you ask of yourself why are you hurt at a particular moment it might make you lead you to some of the presuppositions you've made and make you think about them and you know either you come out thinking yeah they're good presuppositions to make or or you you're like hey i don't know why i ever thought that actually this isn't that big a deal so if if people want to read more of your work and consume more of your work what would you recommend Well I have my website which is amnakhalid.com I also have a podcast that I've recently started hosting it's called Banished it's uh, with Booksmart Studios and people can find Banished on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts so you can subscribe to that and then I write in publicly facing venues as and when it's always posted on my website so people can always find it there I don't have a regular blog I don't think anybody does so <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Amna. Thank you, Dan. This was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did and know someone who would dig it, share it with them and also consider leaving it a review. Again, we grow by word of mouth. In case you didn't hear, I'll also have a write-up of this episode and links to some of Amna's other works in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just go to the homepage, click on the link that says episodes in the upper right-hand corner, and there it'll be just like internet magic. Now, there was almost too much in this episode to comment on, so I'm going to do my best to uh, distill it. First and foremost, Amna's description of the state of speech in America's universities is eerily similar to Ben Studebaker's description over the debate around tech censorship a few episodes back. And in both, we see America's left has become more comfortable letting private institutions such as colleges and corporations enforce their version of acceptable thought at the expense of free debate. And we also see a common thread with our last episode with Gene Beeman emphasizing that teaching the context in which events happen in history is as important as teaching the events themselves and at its core the problem seems to be that we don't really trust people to make their own decisions or at least 
to interpret information in a way we deem as acceptable. And this gets into one of the things that is most stressful about American democracy, which is the fact that you have to accept people may not think the way we do and hope that the majority can lead us down a sensible path. And if we can pull one takeaway from this, it's that if we focus on teaching our children how to interpret information, then we don't need to worry about the impact of disinformation. As always, your music is courtesy of Norway's finest Quellertak. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.